Christian world. And uh, listen, here's what he's done. Since the 1960s, Josh has written and co-authored 150 books in more than 128 languages, including a book, More Than a Carpenter, which sold over 27 million copies, and uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, named one of the 20th century's top 40 books, and one of the 13 most influential books of the last 50 years on Christian thought by World Magazine. Isn't that incredible? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're gonna, I'm gonna keep going. It's gonna be great. You can take this wherever you go and play this before you preach. You're going to do just fine here, man. And uh, when we got the opportunity to have him, I was just like, we've got to do this. When I was um, 18 years old, I became a Christian. I came to faith at 18 years old. And my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, amen, she bought me my first Bible. And my first Bible, at the back of that Bible, had an excerpt from one of Josh's books. And it was... The, the, the pages described the historical reliability and evidence for the scriptures that we have. It gave evidence for the resurrection. It gave evidence for who Jesus was and who He says He was and how we could trust the Word of God. And as a young man who didn't have any real connection with the Bible, to t- pick that up in a culture that I was in where everyone was telling me I was an idiot for going to church and an idiot for believing the Word of God. To read that, it gave me such strength of my conviction. It helped give me something firm to stand on. And I read that at the back of my Bible. I read that over and over and over again because it helped to shame me. And I, that, I actually preached, I actually took that and I preached it. So they, they might already hear it, Josh. They might already know, no, I'm just joking. But it helped me so much in those early years and formative years of my faith to know that what I was holding in my hand and what was transforming my heart was actually something I could rely on and hold on to. And, and I don't know what your journey is here tonight. I don't know what brought you in these doors. I don't know if this is your first time ever in church. Can I say you're safe here? You're welcome here. You, you, you so belong here. And uh, we love that you've come to share your night with us and pray you have an amazing time. And more than anything, uh, I pray that as a, as a people in this room, we just open our hearts to hear uh, from a man who's literally spent his life digging into the tough questions and finding answers to give evidence and backing for the faith that we have. Tonight, Josh is going to be doing a message called The Bible, Fact, Fictional Fantasy, really uncovering uh, the evidence for the, for the reliability of the Scriptures. And so I want to encourage you, lean in, get your notepad out, take notes. I heard he's got around 200 slides that are going, you have to go real fast, all right? So uh, there's going to be some great information. If this stirs your heart, go along to the conference. You'll be so blessed. But without any more talking from me, church, can we stand to our feet? Can we welcome? Welcome, Josh McDowell to the platform. Come on. So you only got one talk, I got two. I'll sit down and you stand up. No. I don't mean this in a trite way. It's so good to be back in New Zealand. In my country, you mentioned New Zealand, probably the first thought most Americans have, wholesomeness. No, it is. This country, the, the, the landscape, and most of the people are wholesome. There's a few bad apples, but most are. <laughs> I have many of those bad apples, but they must be around somewhere. Uh, tonight, I'm going to try something new. I have no idea what happened to my notes. I think I left them in this pizza place. And I'm going to run my own PowerPoint, which I've only done once before. 
and that was this morning. So, <laughs> so <clears throat> you're going to have to be patient with me. But if I hadn't said that, you probably wouldn't even known that I was messing up. What I like about the group that brought me here, thinking matters. Don't just think about it. Thinking does matter if you're a Christian. It, it, I like Christianity because it's, it's an intelligent faith. It's a thinking faith. You don't let your heart guard your mind. You let your mind guard your heart. And um, that was so appealing to me as a, as a skeptic. I wasn't an atheist. I was too smart for that. I was an agnostic, an ordinary, an ordinary agnostic. But uh, what I'm going to share tonight, starting with this artifacts on the table, is some of the things God used in my life to convince me I could open the Bible with intellectual integrity, say, thus saith the Lord. Right. Now, let me see what's on here. Uh-oh. Oh, yeah, there it is. No, this is my family. I have four children, ten grandkids, about four of them are here with me, I think, or three, uh, because I'm, a, well, <laughs> oh, this is going to be a long night. Well, it's my son's kids, and, and I got so many grandkids, I can't keep up with them, but uh, I think there, there's three here, trust me. Uh, you won't meet them, so you don't know if I'm telling the truth or not. But um, this is my entire family, and all the books that I write, my talks, everything, first is to minister to my own family. Uh, my family does not come before my ministry. I think it's horrible to ever put your family before your ministry, because my family is my first ministry. They don't come before, they are my first uh, ministry. And uh, what you have here on the table is one of the three or four rarest in existence. It's a Jewish scroll of the first five books of the Bible. That's not Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It starts with Genesis. And there's three different titles given for the first five books of the Bible or this Jewish scroll. Can anyone tell me what's one of them? This is a Torah. This is a Jewish Torah scroll. Most of you never seen one, let alone ever touch one. Tonight you can photograph it. You can touch it, but not the text. Yeah, uh, you can touch the mark. It's good to feel the texture of the calfskin that it's uh, done on. What's another name that was given to the first five books of the Bible? The Pentateuch, the Pentateuch. Penta means five, the first five books. Now, nobody gets the third. A woman almost did this morning. What's the third title? See, I told you. What? Steve? <laughs> Are you, are you chewing gum or are you trying to say something? <laughs> I mean, go on. I couldn't figure it out, Steve. Your head is so shiny, I can't really see your face. At least you don't have a lot of Grand Canyons. <laughs> You're okay, you know what? Most places you have to peek slowly so they'll get it, but I think you'll get it at any speed. <laughs> but what's the third one? There's a third title. A woman this morning spoke up and said, the law. I said, mm, you're half right. The law of Moses. This is a 
Torah scroll, a Pentateuchal scroll, or the Law of Moses scroll. Now let's see where I go next. Oh. In Matthew, Jesus said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. You have here in the table literal, physical, historical evidence of the truth of that verse. And when I get finished tonight, you'll understand why. I call it the Lot scroll. When you, buy a, when you purchase a scroll, become a caretaker for it, most people name it after themselves. I'm thinking McDowell scroll. Boy, does that sound boring. And I thought, well, I could call it the Josh scroll. And everybody thinks I'm joshing them. And so I call it the Lot scroll after a city with a big, long word in Polish. Uh, in Poland, where the more Jews died in that city from the Holocaust, the inner city. So I named it after them in memory of many of their sacrifices to preserve what we have here tonight. And so I call it the Lot scroll. Now, first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The Pentateuch, the Torah, and the Law of Moses. Now, there's 36 sheets of parchment. Parchment is animal skin, and this is from the skin of a calf. Now, they would never kill, the Jews would never kill an animal to prepare a scroll. Life was too sacred. So the animal had to die a natural death, be killed by another animal, or killed for food. Then they could use the hide, and they could only write on the side that did not have hair on it. Now, you look underneath, there's no hair, but for some reason, they would only write on the non-hair uh, side of a, a parchment. It's 72 feet long. I have four or five other ones that's over 100. This one would roll way out there. The others are about 100 feet long. And first, one of the first questions is, when was it written? This scroll is so unique. In the first column, about 80% of the way down, it looks like a big paragraph, there's two, uh, the same letters in the Hebrew alphabet called pays. But they're called rolling pays in this because if you see, oh, I got to do it. Inside, there's a little curly cue. It looked like an inverted G with a little curly cue. They never permitted that after 1450 A.D. It was forbidden in any scroll. And so even the liberal and conservative uh, Jewish organizations that evaluate scrolls, datum, value, everything, said it had to come way before 1450 A.D. Now, that doesn't sound like real old for you. For a scroll, that is old. Well, you see, yeah, but look at the Dead Sea Scrolls. <coughs> 21, 2200 years old, yeah. But how many Torah scrolls are there in the Dead Sea Scrolls? Anyone? There's 1,285 scrolls. 300 of them are biblical. How many are Torahs? That's right, none of them. There is no Torah scroll. Because, well, where do you get the 300 scrolls in? Any part of a scroll is considered a full scroll. They just discovered seven or nine new Dead Sea Scrolls, and some of them are about the size of your nail. But that's very valuable if it has three, four letters on it or whatever. You only need seven to nine letters to totally identify whatever you have historically if it's in Greek because the database is so huge. If it's in Coptic, you can't do that or Hebrew, but in Greek you can. And so it was copied in Germany on the German or Polish. You say, how do you know that? Well, when you look at it, you think it's black ink. It's not. It's dark brown ink. And the only place that was permitted was on the German-Polish border. 
And so it not only says when it was done, it says where it was done. And then they can't understand how a complete scroll survived through history because most didn't. There's hardly any left. One is because over 11 million Jews, or up to 11 million, were killed in the Holocaust. You could not take the scrolls with you. They burned down your homes. They destroyed your holy scriptures, everything. And yet it survived the Holocaust. Then it survived the Black Death. So what do you mean the Black Death? Well, the Black Death killed almost half the entire population of Europe. I didn't realize that until just recently when I was researching it out. And they blamed the Jews for starting the Black Death. Why? <laughs> it wasn't killing any Jews. They were surviving it and everybody else was dying. So they said the Jews launched the Black Death to take over the financial empire of Europe. But what they didn't realize, they had put the Jews in the ghettos. And in the ghettos, this is so cool, they practiced the health and sanitation laws in the Torah. And because of that, they survived the Black Death. But they were blamed for it, so they, just, they killed them, they destroyed the Torahs, everything. And then, of all things, it survived the Reformation. What's the Reformation going to do? A lot. Many meaningful, unmeaningful believers during the Reformation blamed the Jews for killing Jesus. And so many of the quote, Christians started killing the Jews off, destroying their homes, burning the scrolls, everything. But some, somehow, this survived. Now, people say to me, how did you get it? Well, I brokered it. And to me, at least for me, I want to be very careful. I do not want to buy any stolen artifacts. So that means you usually don't buy them off the internet. They're either stolen or they're fakes. And you can't tell the difference, only a pro can. And so I had over $20,000 spent in this scroll before I even purchased it, just paying someone to go and check it out. Is this one authentic? Was this one stolen? Whatever. And this one I brokered where the village was a very poor village. And when they moved after World War II, they moved to Israel. And they were dying. They were starving, no food. Now, we can't understand this. The scroll was the very spiritual life of the village. It was the heart of their spiritual life. They had to sell it. They had to sell this scroll to survive. And it's kind of humbling to know you're not only a caretaker of a very sacred Torah scroll, but it actually, I mean, how many artifacts actually have kept people alive? This scroll did, and that's humbling. And to me, it makes it even um, more special. And so a man in uh, Turkey bought it as an investment. And I brokered it from him because he did not know what he had. And I didn't feel led of the Spirit to tell him. <laughs> I might be dumb, but I'm not stupid. And I'm sure when I wrote the check, which was worth about one-fiftieth of what it's worth, he laughed at this Christian all the way to the bank, and I hadn't stopped smiling for 11 years. I could never even come close to affording what this thing is worth and on the market. And uh, I only know one other person in the world would ever do this. This thing is so valuable, but more than valuable, it's so rare 
you would almost always have it in a museum behind security glass with a security guard. But it was things like this that brought me to Christ and convinced me about the scriptures. So I always said, Lord, someday I want to acquire some of the artifacts like what you use to teach me that I can use to share with others. So that's how this uh, came about. And then, let me keep going here. The village was so poor, they could not afford their own scribe, like most villages did. They could not afford a new scroll. So what happened if it got damaged? It would start to, to um, fade the ink. Well, once a year, they'd bring in a special scribe. And the scribe would do three things. One, it would literally repair any damage to the scroll from that year. Second, There we go. They would make meticulous corrections. If they found any letter left out or anything, then when the scribe came in, he would make the corrections in it. And then third, they would re-ink the faded letters, which is almost forbidden on any sacred scroll. But they had no other choice. They didn't have any money. And if you unroll this way out, about three of the last five or six columns is very faded where they hadn't re-inked it yet. And a lot of times when you see dark ink, that's where they, they re-inked it. Um, because they wanted to make sure that it was accurate. Now, it's not charcoal ink like most people teach. It's ink from gallnuts. Can anyone tell me what a gallnut is? There's no reason why you would know it. Can anyone know what a gallnut is? Anyone have the gall to even suggest what it is? A gallnut, this is kind of weird, comes from an oak tree. The gallnuts I have came from Aleppo, Syria, if it still exists. And when a wasp would lay its larvae on an oak tree, on the bare wood or on the bark, the oak tree being a living thing, to protect itself, it would start to build an encasement around the larvae. And it created gallnuts, just like that. And you don't take and roll them in your hand because... They can really hurt. Those things are sharp. And inside the gallnut is some of the best dye for clothes. Inside the gallnuts is a material that's used for cohesiveness in medicine to hold, hold like pills together and everything instead of just turning to powder. And then third, it's some of the um, best ink you can, you can create historically. It's like they take and put all the gallnuts in the end of a, a sock and they smash it all up and they learn if they would boil it in one or two different solutions, it would create the most durable ink that would last so many years further than, than um, charcoal ink or anything else and it wouldn't damage the, the material. And so it's, it's um, gallnut ink. And then a scribe was a professional. They were not only ones that copied the scriptures, trained to copy them, but also wealthy families and everything would hire scribes to come in and teach their children the scriptures. And if anyone had a real debate or a question about what something meant, they would call a scribe. Not a rabbi, they would call a scribe. And the scribes, this is mind-boggling, they had to have the entire Torah memorized by heart. But more than that, they had to memorize 4,000 regulation or laws that's built within the text. 
Folks, there's no other literature in history that compares to what you have on the table here. 4,000 regulations built within the text to guarantee that it was accurate. One, they wanted to make sure it was copied correctly. Second, they wanted to make sure it's read correctly. Third, they wanted to make sure it's interpreted correctly. Fourth, they wanted to make sure it was pronounced correctly. And fifth, they wanted to make sure it was treated with the greatest respect and sacredness. And so they built 4,000 laws within the scroll to guarantee that. And you'll see that as we go along. And they had to memorize all that. That's why it took a lifetime to become uh, a scribe. You start out very young. Now, when you look at it, I still think there's no way this was done by hand in a tent with candlelight with a feather from a goose. Why a goose? It was harder so they didn't have to sharpen it as much. And folks, if I keep rubbing my nose, I've got walking pneumonia. And if any of you have walking pneumonia, you know you feel, <laughs> I don't even want to describe the word. You, <laughs> I feel horrible. And I, I think it's affected a low-grade cold. And my nose is just killing me. It's itching so much. So if I, please forgive me, but I, I just do it out of reaction. Um, and that's why I'm leaning on this, because I don't think I could take the whole time and just sit up straight. But to come to New Zealand, even if I died, I would still make it. You know, I learned, I learned something. I learned something tonight. I don't think it's correct, but I learned it. In the, no, in the one hymn, everybody was sinking. Unless I read it wrong, I thought it said, the Son of Heaven rose again. Huh, I thought he only rose once. Steve? You're the great theologian, old master. Didn't he only rise one time? Yeah, check that out. I think it says, the Son of Heaven rose again. I thought, well... I learned heresy. But anyway. <laughs> oh boy, there goes that song out the window. <laughs> and so when you look at it, it's perfect. It's a perfect grid. Every line is absolutely straight. It begins and ends with the same margin. And the reason they did it, they felt if they created a perfect grid, it would help them to copy it more correctly, read it more correctly, interpret it more correctly, pronounce it more correctly. And you know, it does. And so what they would do, they would take each uh, sheet and they would put pins down the corners of it. If you go and look, see how perfect that is. If you go in the first part down there, the blank part, and you got good eyes or glasses like Steve, you can see all the pinholes that goes down the side of it. They put pins in it and then they'd stretch a thin, thin, uh, cord or string between them, then they take either sharp, jagged bone or broken glass and they would score the text. It would take them weeks to do it. And when you look in the margins, you can see the perfect scoring of the text. And then when they did that, they wanted to make sure that every line was straight and they began and ended with the same margin. I mean, here was a problem. You don't hyphenate Hebrew words. You can't divide them up. And so what happens if they come to the end and the word is too long or is too short? 
how do they create a grid? They would do two things. One, they would what you call compress the letters. They would push them together so it ended exactly like you see there with the margin. But here's the problem. No two letters were ever permitted to touch. Every letter had to be the width of a human hair. And so they compress, and I said, uh oh, it touches. I get a magnifying, nope, there's that human hair. Kind of thin, but it's there. And then, if they couldn't do that, they would take the word that was too long and start the next line with it. And then they take the last letter of the word before it and elongate it or stretch it out to the margin, like you see there. See that? And that would cause a perfect grid. And then, you see some more there. They could never copy from memory, even though they didn't need a certified scroll to copy. They knew it all by heart. They couldn't do it. 304,805 letters, they had to do it letter by letter by letter. They would look at it, even though a scribe, that's how we would do it. we look, even though a scribe, we look down, even though a scribe, could recite the entire Torah, could recite. See, you looked at it, you memorized it, you wrote it. They couldn't do that. They had to do 304,085 letter by letter by letter. They first, every, with every letter, they pronounced the word even. E, 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 V, 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 E. Letter by letter, 304,085. Why? To help guarantee accuracy. In Jeremiah 36, 18, he said he pronounced all these words unto me with his mouth, and I wrote them with ink in a book. And so that's why they believe they need to state the word out loud, letter by letter, and then write it. Every single letter, 304,085, had to be written. Each letter, like this letter here, had to be... Usually there's a little activity that shows it being written, okay? That letter had to be written with exact formula, starting from the top. Why? Because if you look at this, I have pastors say, Josh, you wrote it out upside down. I go, really? Yeah, it's upside down. I think it would be embarrassing for me. I said, I didn't know that. They said, yeah. And I said, no, you got a disease called Gentile ignorance. You see, to Gentiles, it looks upside down. If you're Jewish, it looks right side up. Because if you and I were writing on a grid, we'd write the letters on top of the line in certain letters like a J, oh boy, a J or an E would go underneath. They hung the letters for a line, so certain letters would go above the line. So to us, it looks upside down when it's really uh, right side up. Now, every one of these Hebrew letters had to be written with an exact formula. Every single time. And then their, their standard for writing a letter, it had to be written so clearly that an average school child could immediately identify it. Now that's so unusual in history. So many of the classics, other things, were a little bit sloppy, whatever. But when you're studying manuscripts to see what you have, one of the first indications it might be biblical, the letters are very distinct. And boy, does that pay off, that principle right there. Because years later, with most classical works, you can't read it. With the Bible, you can. 
because the, the standard they had for writing uh, each letter. It took a minimum 2,000 hours up to three years to copy a scroll. I couldn't do that. I'm impatient. I stand in a microwave and say, hurry up! There has to be a better way to cook hot dogs. But Jesus said in Matthew 5, 18, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Can anyone here tell me what a jot or a yod is? Anyone? What's a jot? Try it. What? Good try. Totally wrong, but a good try. At least you tried. Nobody else did. Uh, a jot is the tiniest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It looks like this, like a little apostrophe with a little horn on it and a little tail. That's the tiniest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Can anyone tell me what a tittle is? You know, no one, not even a pastor's ever been able, how do you preach from Matthew and not know what a jot and tittle is? That blows my mind. A tittle is insignificant. There's no meaning to it. It's only there for ornamentation. And it looks like this. Let me um, go a little further there. Those are all jots. You see the little lines that go up from the letter with a little curly cue on top? Those are tittles. And it's only there for ornamentation. And only certain letters, maybe, I don't know, maybe 20,000 letters out of 304,805 would have one, two, three, or four, or five tittles. If... Um, See all the, all the ones they put on. Some are one, two, three, four, five. Boy, are those fancy. <laughs> this is the first letter on the top. You read from right to left. And it has four tittles on it, which is called a Taj. Now, that's a fancy word for crown. The Taj Mahal means crown hall. And the Taj means a crown. When there's five tittles, it's a crown. And then you can see some of the tittles there. 4,000 regulations. Now, they wanted to make sure they interpreted it correctly. So they'd use different forms of the columns. For example, right there, you can see this. This is called the Song of the Sea, the crossing the Red Sea. To the Jew, this is the most sacred message God had for him. In other words, he can do it. He's the provider. And so they put it in three columns. And what you do, you start on the right, you read one-third the column. Stop. Do you understand it? If you have any doubt, you call in a scribe. Then you go down a little bit and you read the center one. Do you understand it? Yes. Then you go up a little bit and read the last column. Now, many Jewish traditions say this represents the waves of the Red Sea. I don't know if that's true or not, but it sounds good, so let's say it's true. And um, then, if I could roll this all the way out, you would see this, where one column is put into two small columns. Why? This is another very important message God had for his people. So he put them in where you'd read only two or three, four words at the most. Do I understand this? You read down one column, then go back, read it. say, yeah, but it's so dirty looking. No, that was done on purpose. They learn 
if they created a certain type of solution and painted it over the letters that were fading, it'd come right back to life. It's kind of like you ever taken a, a sheet of paper that's really faded, put it in some copy machines that comes out black and perfect. Well, that's what this formula would do uh, to it. And then inside the letters, you will see elongated letters within the text. Now, it's totally different than those that ended the text to make sure the margin was perfect. When there's text on both sides of it, it means it's very important to slow down and make sure you understand this. All built within the text. And then you can see here a whole line across the bottom. And that text is right over here. And the, almost the entire column is elegated letters, meaning this is very important uh, that God wants to get across to you. Then you'll see large letters. There's 29 of them in the entire scroll. I can't see. There's one right over here somewhere. Uh, and when it's a very large letter, and it looks black, it's dark brown, it's there for the importance of the verse. What it says, built within the text, this verse is very important. And so you have, see that extra large letter there? You have another one here, another one here. And there's 29 of them in uh, this scroll. Now, you also, you won't see them. I don't know how many times it's done, but there's some letters that have one dot above it. It almost looks like an eye with a dot on it. One dot, or I found one that has 11 or 13 dots. Now, what a dot mean? All built within the scroll, meaning this word or this phrase can be very difficult to exegete. Exegete. What does that mean? Exit out of. In other words, to, to interpret it. To read the meaning out of the text is exegete. To uh, interpret it. It means this is very difficult, this word, to understand. Study it carefully. Can you imagine? Now think here, folks. If they took that much care in understanding it so correctly, think what they did to copy it correctly. There's no other literature like it in history. Then you will see blank lines within the text. Every once in a while, I can see four or five right there. And what that means, there's text on each side. What that means is the same thing is in the book of Psalms. Have you noticed some of the Psalms that start with Selah, which means, can anyone tell me, what does Selah mean? What? Pause. Yeah, everybody says that here. Yes, it means to pause, but there's... To pause to do what? To meditate. Right, somebody said it. To meditate on it. All built within the text. This says, Sila, Sila. Pause, go back over what you just read and meditate on it. Then they'll have four, right? Where is it? Right there it is. Four blank spaces. That's the end of Ex Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. Four blank lines means the end of one book, the beginning of another. When you have one line that goes all the way across, it's like a chapter title. Then when you have a line that will start, it's blank, but it ends or it starts blank, like you see here. That means a new thought, a new truth. Have you ever noticed in most of your translations, within the text, it'll have a little word written, maybe between two lines, it'll say, Paul's missionary journey. It's, it's describing a new truth. 
what you're now going to read. Well, that's what these means. It's a new truth. It's different than what you just read. All built within the text. And the problem is, they had to know every single place, how many letters in, everything, all from memory to do that. Then they wanted to treat the scripture with great sacred. Oh, if we did this with the Bible. For example, the first letter is extra large. Uh-oh. I can't do this without that. I lost my, uh, it's still blank. <laughs> oh, it says more coming. Hang on, we're with you. Okay. It's the first letter of the Torah. It means nothing to you being extra big and a crown on it. If you were Jewish here, and it might be some of you, you know exactly what it means. Too bad we don't have something like this that means that to us when we open the Bible. When a Jew in their own home or in the synagogue opens the scroll, unrolls it, and starts to read it, they see this, it means stop. You are about ready to read God's sacred word to you. Cleanse your heart and cleanse your body. They will often go and ceremonially wash their hands or even take a shower. Then they will confess their sins. Then they will start to read. Wow. They will start to read God's word. If they thought it was that sacred, think how careful they had to be to copy it. And then here is a name for God, Elohim, which you all know. And whenever they would come to a name for God, there's, i, I got to find out. There's probably about 3,000 times in the Torah. I know there's 1,419 times Yahweh for God is mentioned. But every time they came for a name for God, they would stop and not write the last letter of the word before a name for God. Doesn't that sound crazy? It's actually brilliant. Because remember when I said, if any two letters touch, they cannot use a scroll until they're corrected. If any two letters for any name of God ever touches, they can never use the scroll. It has to be buried. Can you imagine 1,900 hours? You're on about five columns left. You just had a fight with your wife. <laughs> and your quill bleeds. And two letters touch, that's it. That's justifiable suicide for the wife. I guess that'd be called murder. <laughs> but so what they would do, they would stop before they wrote the last letter before the name for God. They'd put down their quill, ceremonially wash their hands, pick up a special quill only to write the name for God. Nothing else could be written with it except this one thing, the last letter. And then they had a special ink that could only be used to write the name for God. They would dip the quill in it and probably shake it off in there. Because it was forbidden ever to let that ink ever touch the table, the floor, or what? And they could only use that ink to write the name for God. So they needed to clear the ink out of the quill a little bit so it wouldn't bleed when they write the name for God. And they couldn't just scratch it like we would with an ink pen to see if it works. They couldn't do that because that ink could only be used for writing the name for God. So then they would take it and write the last letter of the word before the name for God to draw the ink out of the quill and then write the name for God. That's how much they held the name of God in such sacredness. And this is just some of the material they would use. 
Can anyone here tell me what to tell? Is it my wife? <laughs> Go ahead and answer it, lady. Oh, it's the White House. Okay. <laughs> anyway. I would take it. Anyway. Can anyone here tell me what the tetragrammaton is? What? That's part of it. It's, it's a name for God. Tetra means four. What would that mean, Steve? Four letters. For what name for God? Very good. Of course, we're in New Zealand. <laughs> All right, since you're boasting, what's, a, what's the tetragrammaton? You don't know. You don't know. He's 72.5% right. When Moses was coming down from the mountain, he said, no one's going to believe me that I came up here and met God. He dictated it off. I wrote it all down. Now I'm coming down with it. And the name's right there. The Egyptians won't. And the next verse, it says the Kiwis won't. <laughs> Maybe that's a loose translation. But he said, no one will believe me. So he turned around and he said to God, whom can I say sent me? And like Steve brought out, God said, Yahweh. If you're a Jew here, you don't know how to pronounce it, unless some ignorant Gentile like me pronounces it. Why? A Jew is forbidden to pronounce the name Yahweh. They don't know how to pronounce it. Why? For two reasons. They believe that it's God's first name. And I love this. You are not in a first name basis with God. It's kind of like grandma. You don't call grandma Betty. Especially if her name is Joyce. But anyway, you call her grandma. Well, you don't call God by his first name. Second, they believe God revealed his most sacred name, Yahweh. And your lips are too unclean, now get this, to even allow the breath to pass between them to pronounce God's most sacred name. Even today, if they're writing a commentary in the scripture, and it comes to where they're explaining God, which is Yahweh, they do a capital G hyphen D in English. That's how much they reverenced God in the scriptures. Think how much care they took in translating it correctly. And so... These are the four letters from right to left. Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. Now, it appears 1,419 times in the Torah. Is only spoken sometimes in the temple. So the average Jew has never heard it spoken. Now, when they came to the name Yahweh, you see, you have to understand if I don't mention this, most people don't see it. When you look at the scroll, it's just a solid line of consonants. There's no words, no vowels. Just a solid line of consonants. They know how to read it. We don't. They still do that with Hebrew in, in Israel today. Excuse me, folks. Oh. Whew. You have a beer? No. Has one in his back pocket. Sure, Steve. We'll go out later. <laughs> uh, pastor leads me in sin. But anyway. 
That's how I remember New Zealand, Steve. <laughs> Where was I, Steve? Oh, and so they would write, when they copied the certified scroll, they would write the four constants, Yahweh. They'd either do them a little larger, a little younger, smaller, or they would use old Hebrew lettering. But when they quoted it in their home or in the synagogue, they would come to the Tetragrammaton. Everybody knew it was God's sacred name, but they didn't know how to pronounce it. So what they would do, whenever they came to the Tetragrammaton, they would use another name for God, Adonai, which means Lord. That's why many of the, the words Lord in the New Testament comes in the Tetragrammaton. Uh, and so they'd say Adonai. But everybody knew it was a Tetragrammaton. Because why? Well, in about 900 A.D., the Jews were scattered into all the nations of the world for two, three hundred years. And they started to lose their ability to pass their language and the scriptures on to their children, their grandkids. Because no longer was Hebrew their native language. And it's just a solid line of consonants. They lost the ability to automatically break up the line of consonants into words and how to pronounce it. So along came a group of special scribes called the Masoretes. M-A-S-A-R-E-T-E-S. And they took and created a codex. Now, a codex is a name for a book form of the Torah scroll. If they took all these sheets and put them on top of each other, drilled holes down, tied them together, that'd be a codex, not a scroll. Now, they cannot touch the scroll. They can't change anything in the scroll, but they can in a codex. So what they did to help the Jews in exile, they created a codex where they divided all the consonants into words and then added a vowel system to help those in exile to read and pronounce Holy Scripture. Now, at the end of the 1400s, along came Tyndale to translate into English. He had a problem. He came to the first Tetragrammaton and he didn't know what the Jews had done. And so, now here, what they did, when they put the vowel system into it, they took the four constants for one name for God, Yahweh, took the vowels of another name for God, Adonai, inserted them. It meant nothing. The tetragrammaton means nothing. It's not even a legitimate word. It's the vowels of one word and the consonants of another. And, but whenever they came to it, they would only pronounce the vowels, Adonai, even though it was Yahweh. So Tyndale says, now you think if you're translating, how do you translate that? It's a meaningless word. They didn't even know how to pronounce it, let alone translate it. They forgot what the Jews had done. So he called in some of the experts and said, how do I translate this? So they started practicing. You got Yahweh, Adonai, Yah, Adonai, Yah, Je Jehovah. I tell my Jehovah Witness friends, even your name is wrong. It's not Jehovah. It's Yahweh. Now, nothing wrong with it being Jehovah. We'll always have Jehovah. What else would you do with Christian music? Yahweh? No, that doesn't match it. We'll always have Jehovah for music. That's why when many publishers are now reprinting, they change it from Jehovah to Yahweh. And then these, these Christians that don't know how to use the brain God gave them 
send the nastiest emails and letters. I'll never buy another Bible from you. You are going to be cursed of God. You're changing God's word and all. They're not smart enough to know. They're purifying God's word. It should be Yahweh. And this is what uh, it'll look like. Come on. There we go. At the top is Adonai, and the bottom is Yahweh. In the center, Yahovah. Jehovah. That's how they got Jehovah. Uh, by doing that. But you read from right to left. So, Yahovah. Jehovah. And that's how they got it. And there's nothing wrong with it being in the Bible. This is the Hebrew with a vowel system added to it, Adonai. I don't have any of these with me. I have about 20 of them, but I'm way over. I don't dare to buy anything in New Zealand. I am way overweight. Not me, I mean my luggage. <laughs> Excuse me again, folks, I'm sorry. These are called yads, Y-A-D-S. I call them pointers. The Jews so reverence the scripture, and that's why I ask you not to touch the text. You can touch the margins, fill it to everything, but not the text. Why? The Jews would never, ever touch the text with their finger. Why? They held the text in such sacredness, they believed their finger was too unclean to ever touch God's sacred word. So they used these pointers. They're not made of metal, of iron, or steel. Why? Weapons were made of that. They're made of gold, silver, pewter, uh, porcelain, uh, crystal, wood, but no iron or steel. And some of them are just gorgeous. The top one there, I took it to three different jewelers. They couldn't believe it. One of them held on to it for a week and asked other jewelers if they wanted to see it. They said, this is the most fine uh, creation of an object from silver thread. It is, I mean, to look at it, you cannot believe people did that by hand. And each one of them here, I think it's clear with the next slide. Psst, okay. At the, on the right of each one of them is the index finger like this. And it's in gold. And they could pull, you see, it's a constant line of consonants. So you're standing there, you can very easily misread it. And they didn't want to misread it. So you could touch the text with gold. And they would pull their lines. That's how much they reverence the scriptures. They pull, and they're called yods or pointers. And I'll tell you, folks, some of them are just apps. That's all carved out of bone. And they all have, what do you call it, I guess, gems in them. The gems are worth more than the gold, silver, and everything else. They're so authentic. And here's a very rare one. Has five huge gems in it. Made out of, I think, a horn. And on the end is a gold hand, fist, with the index finger out. They wanted to make sure they copied it correctly. Because one is sacred word. A good illustration of this, there was this young Catholic monk. He was so excited with fresh enthusiasm and everything, he showed up at the monastery he was assigned to. As he walked through the big open doors of the monastery, he couldn't believe what he saw. There were older monks there copying God's sacred word from the certified text. He thought, oh, this is incredible. He said, oh, there could be a big problem. 
What if they're copying from a text where there's an error? Then they're repeating the mistake. So it's so upsetting. He goes to the Monsignor as he reports it, and he said, Sir, I saw this marvelous thing, but you got a great problem. What is it, my son? What if they're copying a mistake? Then they're multiplying the mistake. The Monsignor goes, Hmm. You know, that could be a problem. Tell you what, young man, you just stay here and I'll go down and check it out. So he leaves and he goes down to the room down the catacombs where they have all the certified copies. He doesn't come back. Hour goes by, two, three hours. Finally, the young monk said, did God strike him dead? And so he said, I better go check. So he goes down there and as he comes close to the room, he hears the Monsignor screaming and banging his head against the wall. No, they left out a letter. They left out a letter. They left out a letter. <laughs> Catholic priests get it before I even put the slide up there. They know what's coming. You see a Catholic priest say, oh, no. <laughs> That's how one letter in Hebrew, if just a little bit of it flakes off, um, it can totally change the meaning of the entire verse. And so they wanted to make sure it was copied correctly. It says, don't let the wickedness, wickedness dwell in your tents. And the Jews believe that means you never leave a mistake for more than 30 days. You must correct it. They'd scrape it off, and then they'd correct it. Let me skip over that. Now, they finished. Two to 3,000 hours. About three years. Night and day, letter by letter by letter. Is it accurate? Did all those 4,000 regulations pay off? Now this, to me, I share this with so many non-believers. It blows their mind. I said, what they would do, they would finish 304,805 words. They'd do it up to three times with every Torah scroll. They would bring in a professional scribe called a counter. Not from Sesame Street. This is a different one. <laughs> and they would start to count every single letter by letter by letter, knowing the center letter is in Leviticus 42. So they would count 152,402, hoping to God 403 is the center letter in Leviticus 11:42. If it's not, they can't use a scroll. It might take them a year to find a mistake, and they had to correct it before they could ever use the scroll. Then they would start with the center letter, count 159,402, hoping the last letter is 402. No one ever did that with any other kind of literature in all history. Now, they do that three times. If that wasn't enough, they assigned, an, they did the same thing with words, too they would sign a numerical value to every letter, anywhere from 1 to 400. A Hebrew letter had a value. And so they would go back, and they knew from the certified scroll the total value of every single line of the entire Torah. 
So they'd go back and they would add up the numerical values of the first line, hoping to God it matches the number on the certified text. And they'd do that to the entire scroll. They could tell if they had or left out one consonant and which one it was. No one ever did that with any other literature in history. I don't know how to turn that off. I would encourage you, go to the App Store. It's all free, so don't worry. Go to the App Store to what's called the Lotz Scroll, L-O-D-Z, Scroll app. This is the first scroll to be totally digitized. Not only digitized, you can download it on your smartphone, your iPad, whatever. You can't do it here without Wi-Fi. And you can literally roll out the scroll right on your iPhone or your iPad. And you say, well, what is that there? What does that blank mean? You click onto it, and up comes a video, a description, a definition, or something else to explain it to you. It took a lot, over a year to do it, and thousands of U.S. dollars, uh, <laughs> a little more, to do it. But I, I encourage you to go to it. I don't dare to go to it. I get addicted to it. And I know what it does. I did it. But I'll start unravel. Oh, I gotta I know what it's gonna say, but I gotta touch, I gotta go to the next one, touch it. It just, I mean, it's so incredible to me because I'm not that tech savvy. But if you go there, read the introduction at the beginning, because I share things about the scroll. I didn't have time tonight. But the most important thing is before you close it the first time, go read the conclusion. I give you two documented situations historically that prove the accuracy of what they did with 4,000 regulations. And these are two documented items that you can share with non-believers. Share them with believers, 99% never heard of it anyway. But you can go to the Load Scroll, L-O-D-Z Scroll app, and download it all free, and right on your smartphone, unroll the scroll. I finally concluded, as a non-believer, most of all this I discovered trying to refute it all. And I remember I was sitting there in that library in London, England. And I leaned back on my chair and right in front of everyone, which was probably three people, right out loud I said, it's true. It's true. It's true. Now first what I meant by that, I concluded I can open the scriptures. Now tonight I've dealt with the Old Testament. Next time you invite me back, I'll deal with the New Testament. It's quite different the way they did it. Same reliability, but a totally different approach in how they determine accuracy. But the first thing I can determine, I can with intellectual honesty say, thus saith the Lord. Then I became convinced that what I have is what was written down. I started with the New Testament. It has not been changed. But then I still had another problem I had to deal with. What was written down true? I first concluded that it's true that Jesus did this and Jesus said that. But then I had to deal with the issue, which is about three or four other lectures, was what Jesus said true. Do you see the difference? It's true that he said it, but was what he said true? And that's a fun one to talk about. And I concluded that only, not only what I have is what was written down, but what was written down was true. And after a big struggle... 
15 in the second year in university. I got alone with a friend of mine, made sure others weren't watching. I was a coward. And I had a reputation to uphold of being a staunch non-believer. And I trusted Christ as Savior and Lord. It changed my life. That it started out with convictions that led to a relationship. Now, because of the 152 books I've read with thousands of documentation, documentation on stories, this book here, man, it, it's brand new, weighs a ton. I took evidence, which I wrote a number of years ago, the one I tried to write against Christianity, became a Christian, and uh, the one, the revision I did 11 years ago is called The New Evidence Man's Verdict. It was a gold-covered book, and I called my son almost two years ago, and I said, son, I need your help. I'm feeling so guilty. From all my, I'm a researcher. Heaven to me is researching. And uh, I told Dottie, if the house catches fire, I'll grab my research, run out, and come back and get her. But <laughs> please don't tell her I said that. <laughs> but <laughs> I forgot where I was. Now I'm thinking about my wife. Where was I, Steve? What? Speak English. Oh, I said, son, I've got so much evidence here. It's like a tsunami, and nobody knows about it. So I said, Hun, son, I want to totally rewrite to a total updating of new evidence demands a verdict and call it evidence that demands a verdict. This book is almost 80% new. Probably the most revised major book ever in history. Why? So much new evidence. I mean, you go to the chapter, I don't know which one it is. Uh, anyway, on the New Testament, I'll guarantee you 65% of that material none of you have ever read. The only place it is is in here. Now, in a year, other books will have it. But I spent thousands of dollars all over the world documenting everything. For example, 11 years ago, when I revised New Evidence Man's Verdict, I was able to document of, of scrolls and manuscripts of the Bible, 24,643. You know how many I've documented now? This, I'd never dreamed this would be possible in my lifetime. 66,000, Steve, 462 Manuscript. You know what the number two book in all history is? The Iliad with 1,800. 64,500 difference between the scriptures and any other literature of history in manuscript authority. I never knew that until I set out to make a joke of it. And that's why I did this book to share all that evidence with others. I became convicted. It is true. But all the evidence never brought me to Christ. I don't think it can. All the there's probably no one, there's probably not anyone who has documented more evidence than I have. I mean, 150 books, 52, that's a lot of documentation. But none of that brought me to Christ. All the evidence did was show me that it's true. Just because you believe something is true does not mean you're going to come to it. Out of pride, everything. God used the evidence to show me it was true. It's kind of like I was slamming the door on God, and he put his foot in the door with the evidence. He got my attention. Once I believed it true, then I read it. 
why would I read a book that I thought was a bunch of fairy tales? I got other things to do in my life. And after I became convinced with the evidence it's true, then and only then did I consider the message of the scripture. And what brought me to Christ was not the evidence. It was God's love. I've loved you with an everlasting love. With tender kindness I have drawn you. I still remember that night in my dorm room at the end of the second year in university. I still get chills thinking of this. When I realized, I think God the Holy Spirit had teach it to me. I really understood if I were the only person alive, Jesus still would have died for me. That's the most humbling thought I've ever had in my life. It's not only true of me, it's true of you. When I realized that God, creator of the universe, wants to spend eternity with Josh McDowell. Wow. I don't understand all that intellectually. But from God's word, which I know is true, I understand it. I trust that tonight will help you just appreciate God's word even more. And I think many of you, the next time you open the scriptures, you're going to remember a lot of what you heard tonight. You can go to the, the, the Load Scroll app and download it all. I only touched on it briefly tonight. But God, in English we'd say, or in America, he bent over backwards to show us his love. And that he wanted a relationship with us, but it had to be a right relationship. So he had to reveal his heart in his mind, which he did through the scriptures. And supernaturally worked through the scribes to record it. And we are the generation, among many generations, that benefit from that. So I'm going to end here, and, and for the next 20, 30 minutes, whenever Steve ends, he might go another hour. Uh, <laughs> but, excuse me here. Thank you. Can I have the whole thing? Bless you, my daughter. That makes up for the phone ringing. <laughs> it's out of total guilt, isn't it? You're a fun crowd, I got to tell you. There's nothing better for the soul than Jesus, my wife, and laughing. Not at Jesus, my wife, laughing. <laughs> laughing with them. Um. But you can come up. They're going to remove these poles or whatever they are. I ask you not to touch the text. It doesn't hurt it. In fact, it probably does a good. The oil probably keeps it from flaking off. But the Jews would never touch it, and I think we need to respect that because many of them gave their lives to, to do this and protect it. You can touch the margin. It's good to touch it. Uh, you can take pictures. I had it all chemically treated so light does not hurt it. Um, the, the, the strings are from the lower back legs of a calf because the muscles are extra strong. And when I purchased it, it took him three months to untie each one and tighten it so that when you unroll it, probably, I've probably unrolled it 200 times, it will not tear it or rip it. But you're welcome to take pictures. What else? I will come back up here and for maybe 10, 15 minutes because I got a two and a half hour drive tonight. For 10 or 15 minutes, I'll answer any questions you might have once you look at it. But I just want to say, Steve, to you and the church, what a privilege to come back again to New Zealand and to be able to present this tonight. Right. Thank, you. Thank you. God bless.
What a privilege, what a treat. We won't keep you much longer, church, but I want to do one more thing. Uh, before we finish up tonight, I just think it would be wrong of me not to, after hearing the words that Josh has spoken, after hearing the, about the amazing authenticity and reliability we have in the Scriptures, not to extend a very simple invitation to you. If you're in this room and maybe tonight you're feeling that God in His love is stirring you, He's stirring your heart, maybe He's knocking on the door of your heart to come into a relationship with Him, I'd love to extend that invitation to you tonight. Can I invite you in this room just to bow your heads and close your eyes just for one moment? The truth is, friends, I agree with Josh, that God loves you so much. He loves you more than you'll probably ever know. We all mess up, we all sin, we all fall short of God's standard, and God in His amazing grace sent His own Son, Jesus, to a cross. When He died on that cross, He took upon Himself what you and I were due for our sin. And He extends to every one of us in this room, not judgment or condemnation, He extends grace, forgiveness for all your wrongs. He gives you a brand new life that begins right here, right now. You can be brought into right relationship with Him. You get made brand new from the inside out. God's got plans for your life. You're not an accident. You're not a mistake. God's got a plan for you. And He's got this great promise of eternity in heaven with Him for you. You're made for more than just this world. And I want to give that invitation. If you're here and you don't know Him, I want to invite you to pray a very simple prayer with me. I'm going to pray this prayer out loud. But you don't have to pray it out loud. You can pray it with me in your heart. But when you pray it, I want you to mean it with everything you've got. If that's you tonight, just repeat after me. Say these words. Say, God, today I open my life to you. I know that I've sinned. I know that I've messed up. But I believe that Jesus, you died for me. So right now, I turn from my old life and I turn to you. I ask that you would come in and be the Lord of my life. Come and take control. I choose from this moment to live for you in Jesus' name. Just while every eye is closed and every head bowed, I wanna invite you, if you made that decision tonight, if you prayed that prayer, can I just say I'm so proud of you. As a church, we're so proud of you. I think it's the most amazing thing you could ever do in your whole life. And I wanna invite you to do one more little thing, just to be brave, be bold tonight. Take one more little step of faith. If you prayed that prayer, I'm gonna to count to three. When I get to three, I want you to be real brave right where you are. If you prayed that prayer, either it's for the first time or maybe you're coming back to God tonight, I want you to put your hand up nice and high. I'm not doing that to embarrass you or call you out. All I wanna do is acknowledge your hand and you can put it straight back down. This is your night. This is your moment. Are you ready? On the count of three, one, two, three. Hands up nice and high saying, Steve, that's me. Count me. Yeah, my man. I see you, brother. I see you. Yeah, incredible. Yes, down the back. I see you, my man out the front. I see you too, man. You know what I was saying? Steve, that's me. Count me in, man. I prayed that prayer. I meant it. I'm serious. Awesome. Yeah, I see you over there. That's fantastic. You know what I was saying? Steve, count me in. Count me in. Awesome. Well, God, we thank you for what you're doing here tonight. I see you on the top. Thank you for what you're doing in this place. We thank you for your incredible word. And we thank you for the great plans you have for us. We bless all those that have responded tonight. That new life has come to them. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, church, put your hands together, those people.